Hello, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. And we hope this message will help you grow in your walk with Christ. And if you'd like to support this ministry, you can do so by visiting theroadfc.org and click on the giving link. I want to welcome you all to our worship service. Um, This, as Daniel mentioned, is the final Sunday in the season of Epiphany. And it brings that season to a close. And then this Wednesday starts a new season in the Christian calendar, the season of Lent. And so on Wednesday, we'll have a Ash Wednesday service here at the church at 7 p.m. And you all are invited to come and enjoy a few words of reflection from Pastor Andy on the meaning of Lent and Ash Wednesday. And then we'll have the opportunity to receive the ashes and uh, remind ourselves of our own mortality and be able to repent from the ways that we've fallen short of God's intentions for uh, our lives. The season of epiphany that we're bringing to a close today, the word epiphany basically means revealing, and it refers to the fact that Jesus was revealed during his time on earth to be the Messiah, the Son of God. We began the season by reading about the visit of the Magi, the three wise men, the three kings who came. They were Gentiles, that is, non-Jews, and they came to worship Jesus and recognize him as a new king of the Jews. And so that was kind of revealing to the whole world for the first time who Jesus was. And then usually in the first week or maybe the first Sunday of Epiphany, we also celebrate the baptism of Jesus at the hands of John the Baptist. We remember that the words that Jesus heard that came down from the Father above was, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And thus began the public ministry of Jesus. So all that happens at the beginning of Epiphany. And then in the remaining weeks between then and now, it's pretty traditional in the church to read and study and preach from the life of Jesus, Jesus' teachings. And we've been doing that in our sermon series based on finding Jesus in Genesis and lately finding Jesus in Exodus. Genesis and Exodus are, of course, the first two books of the Bible, and they're two of the five books that start out the Bible Um, It's called the Torah, and um, the Jewish people call the first five books of the Bible the Torah, or the law. Another name is called the Pentateuch, which is a Greek word. It means five, penta, and tuch means work or word or book. And in fact, several of the books in the Pentateuch have Greek names, even though they're from the Jewish scriptures. Uh, Genesis means the beginning. We get our word genetics from that. Um, Exodus, of course, means ex is out of, and hodas is the way, so it's a way out, Exodus. Now, Leviticus is a Hebrew term because it's named after the tribe of Levi, um, and so that's Hebrew. And then the, the book Numbers is English for numbers because it talks about the census, I guess, that they, they took of the people of Israel. And then the last book of the Pentateuch is Deuteronomy. That's another Greek word. Deutero means two or second. And then nomos means law. So it's the second law. Basically, it's just a re- rehearsal or a recitation of the law that was given to Moses, much of which is found in Exodus, but it's kind of repeated in the book of Deuteronomy. All this terminology probably sounds like Greek to you, but someday you'll be glad that I told you about all of this. Anyway, back to what I was saying. We're wrapping up Finding Jesus in Exodus. 
However, in fairness, I have to tell you that you should prepare to be disappointed a little bit this morning. Not only is Pastor Andy a better preacher than I am, but I'm afraid we're not going to be finding Jesus in Exodus today. So, there you go. <laughs> um, but don't head for the exit just now. Our crack security team has already secured all the entrances and exits. No, just kidding. Um, but we do have something, I think, to share with you today based on what uh, Pastor Daniel mentioned was to let be, today is the Sunday of Transfiguration. So we're going to talk a little bit about that today. Um, it's a strange story. It's told in three of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And today we'll look at Luke's versions of this event. But in order to grasp, uh, get a hold of the meaning of what the transfiguration was and meant, we're going to back up just a little bit before that story and take a running start at it so we can get a picture of the context. We'll be reading from Luke uh, chapter 9, beginning with verse 18. And we'll have some of the scriptures up on the screens for you. Um, so Luke 9:18. One day Jesus left the crowds to pray alone. Only his disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do people say I am? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. And others say you're one of the other ancient prophets risen from the dead. This is not an unexpected answer because people who encountered Jesus, um, saw, heard his words and saw his actions, they took those to be the words and actions of a prophet. In Luke chapter 7, just a few chapters earlier than where we started here, uh, Jesus encountered a widow woman and her son had just died. And um, Jesus wanted to um, uh, help this woman. So in Luke seven fourteen, it says, he, he walked over to the coffin and touched it and the bearers stopped. Young man, Jesus said, I tell you, get up. Then the da dead boy sat up and began to talk. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. Great fear swept the crowd, and they praised God, saying, A mighty prophet has risen among us. And then just at the beginning of chapter 9, just a little bit before what we just read, um, Herod Antipas, who was the Greek, Jewish, Roman ruler of the area, he was the ruler of Galilee, and he heard about everything that Jesus was doing, and he was puzzled. Some were saying that John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. Others thought Jesus was Elijah or one of the other prophets risen from the dead. So that news had trickled up to Herod, who was the ruler of Galilee at the time. And even after Jesus' death and resurrection, a lot of the people who were interested in following Jesus still saw him as a prophet. If you remember the story of the two men who were walking toward Emmaus on the evening of the resurrection, they were talking among themselves and Jesus approached them and, and appeared along with them, was walking alongside them. They didn't recognize him. And so he, kind of, he was kind of probing to see what they thought of the things that were going on. And here's what they said, referring to Jesus. He was a prophet who did powerful miracles. And he was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people. So the popular perception of Jesus was a prophet. And even Jesus himself identified himself as a prophet. In Luke 4.24... He's preaching to his hometown synagogue in Nazareth and is reading from the scriptures and explaining it. And then people get upset with him. And Jesus says that, I tell you the truth, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. So he's referring to himself as a prophet. And in Luke 13, Jesus says, and this is when he's on his way to Jerusalem to face his death and eventual resurrection. 
He said, yes, today and tomorrow and the next day, I must proceed on my way, for it wouldn't do for a prophet of God to be killed except in Jerusalem. So Jesus thought of himself as a prophet. And remember how Pastor Andy describes what a prophet is or does. A prophet brings a timely word from God for the people of God. And this might, might involve a prediction of the future, but just as often, or maybe more often, it's a word about a current situation and what God's direction for that situation would be. So in the Gospels, we see this profile of Jesus as a prophet. Um, throughout the, all four Gospels, he's referred to or likened to or compared to Ezekiel, sometimes Jeremiah, sometimes Jonah, Amos, Elijah, and even John the Baptist. Um, and his first call, his first preaching, was a call to repentance, just like the Old Testament prophets did. Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And, of course, back in his hometown synagogue of Nazareth, he stood up and he read this from the scroll of Isaiah, which said, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to pro proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And he said, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So he also preached for social justice and a correction of all the wrongs that were going on. Um, he would also speak about the hollow or, or superficial observance of the law of Moses, the Pentateuch, the Torah. He would confront the teachers and the Pharisees about that. He would speak truth to power, just like an Old Testament prophet would. He had gone into conflicts with the Pharisees, with the priests, and with Pilate, the Roman governor. And he also engaged in what some of the Old Testament prophets did called symbolic action. He would act out something to make a point. Um, he would cleanse the temple. He turned the tables over of the money changers in the temple. He would curse the fig tree to make a point to his disciples. And he washed his disciples' feet, which is a, a, a prophetic action in, in, in action. And then, of course, at the Last Supper, that was a symbolic prophetic action where he reinterpreted what the old Passover feast from the Old Testament was to be. So in his words and in his actions, Jesus was proclaiming and announcing a message, a timely word from Israel's covenant God. He called for immediate change of heart, which is repentance, uh, a new direction in life, an invitation to a new way of being the people of God. And the reign of God, he would say, that they've been waiting for for so long, would now, has now begun in him. So this is the idea, the, the uh, perception of Jesus as a prophet, which is why the disciples immediately went to that, I, that model for explaining who Jesus was. But then, back to our passage, Jesus asked his disciples, okay, you've heard all this, what are the people are saying? He says, then he asked, who do you say, who do you say that I am? And Peter replied, you're the Messiah sent from God. And Jesus warned his disciples not to tell anyone who he was. Now, here, Peter has put his finger on a completely different category from prophet. A Messiah is a kingly figure, not a prophet, but the king, the ruler. And for um, Jesus, he was not ready for that 
I guess, perception of him to be broadcast yet. So that's why he says, he warns his disciples not to tell anybody who he was. That is referring to this particular title of Messiah, the King. Um, so um, the timing probably wasn't right yet for that kind of incendiary claim, he, um, a, a claim of being a king, of course, put him immediately into conflict with the Roman authorities as well. Um, and also, Jesus' idea of what kind of Messiah he was going to be was quite different from the popular ideas. The popular ideas that this would be a political or military ruler or king who would restore the fortunes of Israel and you know, free the people of Israel from the bondage of Rome. And um, that was not Jesus' idea of what the Messiah was going to be. And he hadn't really had time to develop that idea in his disciples. So that was why, probably one reason why he wanted them to keep quiet about this Messiah ship idea. But he soon becomes um, involved in teaching his disciples about what his idea of messiahship would be. In verse 22 we read, Jesus said, the son of man must suffer many terrible things. He will be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He will be killed, but on the third day he will be raised from the dead. So in Luke's gospel, this is the very first um, explanation from God, from Jesus, about his version of what the Messiah would be, what the Messiah would encounter. He was not going to be a conquering military or political leader, but he was going to be a suffering, dying, resurrected figure. And not only that, Jesus goes on to say, if you really are interested in following me, this Messiah, here's what your life is going to be like. So verse 23, he said to the crowd, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross daily and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but are yourself lost or destroyed? If anyone is ashamed of me and my message, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he returns in his glory and in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. But I tell you the truth, some standing right here right now will not die before they see the kingdom of God. So that's our context for this transfiguration story. Jesus, the popular prophet, predicts his death as a suffering Messiah, his ultimate resurrection, and then he lays out the conditions for being among his followers. So now we come to the main story, the story of the transfiguration. Verse 28, chapter 9 of Luke. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed. His clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. So here we have the transfiguration. There's been a change in Jesus' appearance, his look. Bright, his clothes are bright. There's glorious splendor all around him and Moses and Elijah, these two heroes from the Old Testament. Um, we try to think of what this means. What, what is Luke trying to say? What did the disciples understand? What did Jesus himself experience and understand about what was happening here? Well, one thing it's probably not is that this is not a display of Jesus' divinity, his godlikeness, because Moses and Elijah are also bright and shining and glorious and splendor, 
but they're not divine. They're human prophets and Old Testament leaders. So it's probably not a sign of Jesus' divinity, but more likely it's a preview of what the resurrected Jesus would be like. You remember when Jesus appeared to his disciples after his resurrection, they recognized him, but yet they didn't because some things were different about Jesus. He could appear and disappear and move around differently. So it's also um, probably some kind of a, fore, a preview of what resurrected humanity would be like. Glorified humanity the way God intended us to be from the very beginning. And so that is what Elijah and Moses were experiencing right then. And that's why they appeared the way they did with Jesus here on the top of this mountain. One other thing to notice is that when they spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem, referring to Jesus and his intention to go there to the capital city where he knew that he was going to face uh, conflict, trouble, arrest, uh, beatings, his death on the cross, and eventually his uh, resurrection, of course, all of that which he had just predicted to his disciples. The question, another question we have is, why are Moses and Elijah there? Why those people? Why those two persons? Well, in a sense, they represent all the Old Testament history of the people of Israel. Moses represents the law, the Pentateuch, the Torah, which God had given him on Mount Sinai, and he delivered to the people of Israel. And Elijah, of course, is one of the leading prophets of the Old Testament. So when you think of the law and the prophets, that kind of sums up the whole Old Testament history of the people of Israel. And they were the most famous and powerful prophets of the Old Testament. Remember some of the details about Ezekiel's ministry? He raised a, a dead boy to life. Um, that same boy and his mother, who was a widow, uh, were running out of food, and he provided an on, uh, Ezekiel provided an ongoing supply of food for them based on just a little bit of oil and flour that they had left in their house. Um, Ezekiel also confronted the evil King Ahab and his idolatrous Queen Jezebel. And he spoke truth to power to them, saying that you're doing the wrong thing here. You're treating your people badly and you're worshiping the wrong gods. And in fact, he represented God in a contest with the prophets of Baal, a pagan god, which God won big time. Uh, he met God on Mount Sinai when he was depressed and needed a, a personal encounter with God. And he did not suffer death. He was taken directly up to heaven, the scriptures tell us, um, right into, directly into God's presence. So Ezekiel was a standout prophet from, of all the prophets in the Old Testament. And of course, we know the story of Moses, spoke to God face to face on several occasions. He led the Hebrew people out of slavery in Egypt, took them through 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, and brought them right to the border of the promised land. He met God on Mount Sinai where he received the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law that we read about in the Torah or the Pentateuch. And all of that guided the life and the worship of the people of Israel, which gave them their national identity and uh, their culture. And the book of Deuteronomy tells us that Moses went up to a mountain and died alone. No one knows where Moses was buried because God himself buried Moses. And it also kind of, kind of became tradition that perhaps maybe Moses didn't really even die. Maybe he was like Ezekiel and God just took him up to heaven since no one knows where his grave is. That's not in the scriptures, but it became a Jewish tradition or a legend. So Moses is seen not only as a leader and a lawgiver, but also as a prophet. The very final chapter of Deuteronomy 
which closes out the whole Pentateuch, says that since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all those signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his officials and to his whole land. For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. So Ezekiel and Moses kind of represent the culmination and the most um, condensed version of what being a prophet of God's people was like. And so therefore, Jesus was fellowshipping with them and talking with them um, about his uh, upcoming trip to Jerusalem where he would face his death and resurrection. Now, back to the transfiguration story, verse 32. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving, Peter said to him, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let's put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And he did not know what he was saying. Clever little parenthetical comment there by Luke. Peter desires to build some shelters. This might be just kind of an awkward conversational filler kind of a thing because Peter didn't know what to do with this vision of Jesus glowing and being bright and colored with Moses and Elijah right there. Um, or it could be that he was maybe trying to figure out a way for them, that Moses and Elijah and Jesus, to stay here for a while. So let's, let's build a little hut for you. You can stay here. You don't have to be exposed to the elements kind of a thing. Um, whatever it was, it was kind of out of context and really not appropriate because it as Luke comments, he didn't really know what he was saying. Um, but then verse 34 says, While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. That sounds faintly reminiscent, doesn't it? Remember the words that Jesus heard at his baptism? You are my son, in whom I am well pleased. Anyway, when the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. Elijah and Moses were gone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. So the cloud, the voice, the words of, you are my son, um, all of them kind of act as a bookend. The very beginning of his ministry and his baptism, we hear these words. And here at the end, close to the end, where he's kind of pivoting towards Jerusalem and the end of his life, we hear the very similar words. This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. So it's a pivot point on Jesus' journey to the cross, the transfiguration is. Now I want us to go back and look at the, the important word, listen to him. When we listen to someone, um, we're paying attention. Um, and maybe as a parent, you might say, listen to me, to your kid, basically wanting them to pay attention, obey, follow, do what I say. And this could certainly be one meaning of what the voice was saying to the disciples. This is my son. Listen to him. Follow him. Obey him. Stick with him. And it also could also mean, that if you put the emphasis on the last word, listen to him, that is Jesus. And of course, Jesus is by himself. Moses and Elijah have disappeared. So no longer do you need to listen to Moses or Elijah, the law and the prophets. Jesus is the one that you're supposed to follow and listen to. That he's the one that you're supposed to listen to. And we'll come back to that in a minute. But um, in the midst of all the noise and other voices that were going on, the disciples, at least these three, Peter, James, and John, were being instructed 
to stick close to Jesus and pay attention and follow him alone. Now, <clears throat> another kind of caution here, I have to tell you about this, that you need to be prepared to be pleasantly surprised right now. There's another layer to this transfiguration story, and it's back in verses 30 and 31. I want to read that again for us. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Now, the Gospel of Luke was originally written in Greek, and the Greek word that Luke uses for departure is exodus. So, we talked about we're not going to find Jesus in Exodus, but I never said we couldn't find Exodus in Jesus' story, right? The reason that Luke has chosen this word is because that in his death, Jesus is going to act, enact an event just like the great Exodus from Egypt that Moses led, only more so. Moses led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt and home to the promised land. In the new Exodus, Jesus will lead all of God's people out of slavery of sin and death and home to their promised inheritance, the new creation in which the whole world will be redeemed. That's a quote from N.T. Wright, our favorite theologian, biblical scholar around here. So, um, it's a great surprise, isn't it? It's like Luke knew what it, like an Easter egg is in a film, right? When those little hidden surprises, if you know Greek, then we, we, we realize that Jesus is being compared to Moses because he's leading a new exodus. So really, we're kind of, even though we're not in Exodus, the story of Deuteronomy tells us a little bit about what this means, what it means for Jesus to be the new Moses. So if we knew our Pentateuch from our patella, we might not be so surprised because Moses had told the Israelites, just as they are about to enter the promised land, that God would send them a new, greater Moses. So let's look at Deuteronomy, the last book of the Pentateuch. In, in chapter 18, verses 14 to 18, we read this. This is God speaking to the people of Israel through Moses. And they're about to enter into the promised land, which is Canaan, which is already settled with people, and the Israelites are going to settle in there among them. So, verse 14. The nations you will dispossess listen to those who practice sorcery or divination. But as for you, the Lord your God has not permitted you to do so. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. For this is what you asked of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let's not hear the voice of the Lord anymore, nor see this great fire anymore, or we will die. So the Lord said to me, what they say is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything that I command him. So for Moses and the people of Israel, right there on the verge of entering the promised land, they get this news that there's going to be someone that will replace Moses, someone who will be a prophet like me that will help lead you into the future. Now, from their context, it could have been a reference to Joshua, who was Moses' chosen successor. And Joshua is the one who led them into Canaan where they settled and, and settled down amongst all the Canaanites. Um, or Moses maybe could be referring to all the other prophets that would come after him, all the other prophets that we know from the Old Testament. But the early Christians, when they were talking about Jesus, they saw Jesus 
as the new Moses. In Acts 3.18, Peter, the apostle who first recognized Jesus as a Messiah, also recognized Jesus as this new Moses. He's preaching the very, on the day of Pentecost where he's preaching the first Christian sermon. He says that God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. And then Peter says to the crowd listening to him, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything that he tells you. So the early Christians recognized Jesus as this long-promised new Moses-type prophet. And if we think about the stories about Jesus and Moses, it's, it's pretty obvious, pretty clear. Um, Moses led the people of Israel through the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness facing temptation from Satan. Moses, um, God through Moses divided the Red Sea and allowed the people of Israel to walk through. And Jesus also had power over the seas. He walked on the sea. He calmed the storm, the, the storm that was threatening to swamp the boat the disciples were in. Um, we learned, was it last week, that Pastor Andy preached about uh, Moses' staff hitting the rock and water came out to give water to the people of Israel. Well, Jesus talked about himself to the woman at the well, that I can give you living water that will never run out, right? Remember that? Jesus um, called people to repentance and led them into freedom from uh, their sins and their guilt, but he was rejected by his own people. And we re remember last week we read about how Moses was, um, the people of Israel co complained and quarreled, and in some versions of the Bible it talks about how he suffered and was rejected by his own people several times along the story. So, and even if you look at the Gospel of Matthew, his whole Gospel book is kind of built or structured around this idea of Jesus being a new Moses. There are five great big blocks of teaching in the book of Matthew. And then in between those are five blocks of narrative of what things Jesus did and went and where he and talked and stuff. But these great big concentrated sections of teachings, five of them, Five books in the Pentateuch, right? The books of Moses. And he completely always talks about, Matthew always talks about how Jesus did this to fulfill what was said, and then he fills in the blank with an Old Testament verse. And in fact, we've seen that when, law, when Moses gave the law, kind of the, the concentrated summary is the Ten Commandments that we have. And for Jesus, especially in the book of Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount serves as kind of a concentrated uh, version of all of Jesus' teachings. So Matthew makes a very explicit um, com comparison between Moses and Jesus in his gospel. But it's through all, all four of the gospels. So now we see that Jesus is a prophet, just like Moses, but even greater. He's not different from or in conflict with Moses. The kingdom will not override the laws of Moses and the prophets. The word to Israel was to listen to the prophet that God would send. And the word to Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration was to listen to God's chosen son. So the word to the Israel in the past and the word to the disciples um, in the Gospels is also a word to us today. 
If you want to find the way, the way to the promised land or the way to God, we have to listen to Jesus, the prophet that's greater than Moses. <clears throat> Which sounds good, right? It seems pretty straightforward, um, simple to understand, but it's not always easy to do. Like I said, there's lots of noise in our world today, lots of sources of people claiming this or that or putting forth this kind of truth or the whatever. And um, we have some instructions, thankfully, in this passage from Deuteronomy about how we can discern what a true voice is, sounds like, a, a true prophetic voice. In Deuteronomy 18, verses 19 to 22, God continues to give these instructions or directions to the people of Israel. He says, I myself will call to account anyone who does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name. Any prophet who presumes to speak in my name anything that I have not commanded, or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods, is to be put to death. And you may say to yourselves, how can we know when a message has not been spoken by the Lord? If what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has spoken presumptuously, so don't be alarmed or pay attention. So embedded in these instructions to the ancient people of Israel, I think, might be three criteria for us to think about um, determining whether a word that's coming to us is truly from God. The first one is that it should be consistent with God's time-tested commands and the larger story of God. The phrase, a prophet who presumes to speak in my name anything that I have not commanded, that points back to the fact that it has to be consistent with what I've already said. God says. Any interpretation of God's will that's in incompatible with our Christian story is likely to be questionable. So think about, I don't know, some of the convoluted conspiracy theories that you might hear that depart from established Christian teaching. Um, maybe new movements or new leaders that claim to have discovered some secret to life or maybe some long hidden um, truth that nobody else has discovered until I've got it. Those kinds of things are not to be trusted. In Hebrews, verse, uh, one through two, Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 2, it states that in the past, God, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And the rest of the book of the Hebrews goes on to explain that Jesus is God's final word. There's nothing else to be added to it, no other new or hidden information that God is keeping from us. In Jesus, it's all been fully revealed, and that's where, why we listen to Jesus. A second criteria is that the word from a prophet must be built on and promote only God's values. That phrase, don't listen to a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods, Israel was going to encounter that when they entered the land of Canaan, and we have lots of other gods floating around in our society. Someone who holds some value higher than God is speaking falsely. We can't listen to those people. If someone's promoting some value or loyalty that's higher than God, we can't trust that. Even if the loyalties themselves may be good in and of themselves, for example, um, maybe having um, someone encourage you to have a strong work ethic at work. Um, if that turns into controlling your life outside and, with, and not allowing you to have family time or time to serve God, 
um, that might be, you know, having a good work ethic is good, but not when it overtakes your loyalty to God. Um, patriotism, loyalty to your company, uh, family values, the false god of financial security or some kind of social advancement, those are all fine as secondary priorities or values, but they can become euphemisms for false gods if they compete with God for our time or our money or our devotion. And then the third criteria for what's a true word from God, <clears throat> a truth claim that does not come true or is not based on verifiable fact aren't from God. Um, Moses said, if what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message that the Lord has not spoken. And now this one is problematic because by the time something happens or, we, or doesn't happen, um, maybe we can't tell if something is true until it's too late. It's already upon us. We haven't had time to prepare or plan or respond to it. Um, so we're kind of having to place blind trust in someone or some word, which is risky to do when we're by ourselves uh, because it's always easy to talk yourself into something that you actually want, right? Um, our best course of action here is probably to belong to a community of faith that together listens to God and discerns which voices can be trusted and then remembers to hold them accountable to see if they actually come true. So to doing it together is a better way of listening to Jesus as the prophet greater than Moses. Together we can look back at God's history, our Christian story, and in the light of that history then, take a hard look at our current way of life to see whether or not some voice that we're hearing conforms to that story. Uh, one of the things that Moses did, uh, or actually God directed Moses to do, that helps in doing that, remembering the Christian story, remembering the story of the people of God, that is to put in practice something, an annual reminder. And that for Moses was the Passover celebration, the Passover feast, where they would remember what God did to free them from the people of Israel. Jesus celebrated the Last Supper as part of his Passover feast with his disciples and gave it a new meaning. Um, it looks back at the Exodus and then forward to the coming of the kingdom. At his Last Supper, Jesus infused his Jewish tradition with an expanded meaning for his disciples. His words and his symbolic actions evoked this whole Exodus tradition and gives it a new direction. A new Exodus was happening in and through Jesus and he was both the new Moses leading his people out of bondage and the sacrificial lamb whose blood marked God's people as free to become the people that God called them to be. And on the night that he was handed over to suffering and death when he celebrated his last supper with his disciples, Jesus took bread and then when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and he said, take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. You do this in remembrance of me. And then after supper, he took the cup of wine, and we had given thanks. He gave it to the, his disciples, and he said, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink, do this in remembrance of me. I'd invite you to pray with me. Holy and gracious Father, in your infinite love, you made us for yourself. And when we had fallen into sin and became Subject to evil and death, you in your mercy sent Jesus Christ to share our human nature, to live and die as one of us, 
to reconcile us to you, the God and Father of all. So now, Lord, we're going to celebrate Christ's actions for our redemption as you instructed us with praise and thanksgiving. We recall his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, and we offer to you these gifts of bread and juice. We ask that you would sanctify them by your Holy Spirit, that they might become for us the body and blood of Christ, and sanctify us also, that we can faithfully receive your grace and serve you in unity and peace. And at the last day, bring us with all your saints into the joy of your eternal kingdom. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.